Well, good morning and welcome to church. It's really good to be here with you guys. Welcome online, Jasper County Jail, Hebron, and DeMont Wheatfield. You know, we had an awesome weekend. I don't know if you know this, but we had a combined DeMont Wheatfield and Hebron lock-in. We had over 150 show up, and that's just sixth through ninth grade. And uh, it was awesome. What a great evening, or all night. But uh, it's funny to me, because when you're a kid, it's like, I can't wait to stay up all night. And now that I'm 36, almost 37, it's like, I can't wait to go to bed, you know? But uh, man, it was really cool. And we had our new youth director, John Graham, put the night together, and he did did an amazing job. And I hadn't quite trained him on like the way we do invitation to receive Christ here. He's an Oklahoma boy. He did a good old come forward to the altar. And uh, I think we had like 10 kids respond to give their lives to Christ. Let's give that a big round of applause. I think that's a really cool thing. And uh, I'm just so proud of him and so grateful for the job that John Graham is doing. If you don't have your kids in Next Gen, um, you're definitely going to want to get them involved because it's such a cool thing to be a part of. Now, we are in the third week of our Canceling Jesus um, series, and I can't think of a better time nationally or internationally to be talking about Jesus and cancel culture. We've been talking about Jesus's great healing words that really brought an end to the practice of cancel culture in the world of antiquity. He started off in Matthew 5, 43 saying, you've heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And that's typical, isn't it? Everybody lives that way. Of course, you know, I love those who are close to me. I hate those who disagree with me. And he says, look, if you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even the corrupt tax collectors, even the corrupt political class does that much. Think about it. Putin, Justin Trudeau, of course, they're going to like dehumanize people they disagree with. I mean, didn't Justin Trudeau say, well, all the truckers are Nazis? And Putin said, Zelensky, who is a literal Jew, is a Nazi. It's like, come on, man. We live in a polarized, spiteful world full of hate. You know, nation fighting against nation, father against daughter, husband against wife. And it's not just Putin and Trudeau. Um, it's everyone. It's me when I'm writing that mean review. It's my anger when somebody cuts me off in traffic or on 65 when we're stopped for no reason. Like, what in the world? It's the worst road in the world. It stops all the time. It's what's going through your mind when you're thinking about your in-laws. And Jesus is just pointing out this yucky part of human nature that thrives in all of us. You know, he put an end to cancel culture 2,000 years ago for those who practice what he teaches. He said, look, this is what the world does, but I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you in that way you'll be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. He says, look, if you're sick of everyone hating everyone else, somebody's got to break this cycle, right? You got to start loving those you disagree with. It doesn't mean you support or endorse negative behavior, but it does mean you got, you got to win their hearts. And here's the thing. Last week, we talked about how to love your enemies, right? How do you get yourself to do it? We said, hey, you know, it starts with receiving forgiveness from God that increases your capacity to love others. This week, I want to talk about how do we get our enemies to change? And this is a critical message for so many of us. And this is a part of what we're called to do as Christians and what we're going to do, pretty simple message. I'm going to tell a story. We're going to look at some Bible and then I'm going to make some points. And I'm just going to tell you right now, big to be continued from last week. If you missed it, check it out. Um, you'll still be able to follow along, but last week makes this week a lot, lot better. But um, no matter where you're at, this message is going to be helpful. Who doesn't want to know how to change the mind of people who are, who are different? I'll start with a story of my mind being changed. Um, you know, there was a time in my life where I think I was really rebelling against God's plan for my life. In college, I went in knowing what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a pastor, and I was super laser-focused on that. 
And I gave my life to Christ at 15. And pretty much since then, this is what I wanted to do. I took notes in every college chapel, every church service I went to. I, I had this notebook that I just filled with an outline of the message that the pastor would give because I wanted to know, this is how you write a message. This is how it's put together. Here's what I would have done differently, whatever else. And every pastor I met, I would beg for a meeting. Hey, let me buy you lunch. I just want 30 minutes to pick your brain right? Just, I want to know how you got into this. What do you do? Why do you do this? What would you say to someone who wants to get into this? What are the mistakes you made? How can I learn from whatever? And um, I was really into this. And, you know, my junior year of college, this beautiful girl came along and she was a horrible fit for me. And right away, I knew that she was not somebody that I should be with, but man, I wanted to be with her. And so I ignored my better judgment. I ended up dating this girl. And in spite of all that I knew, even though it was wrong, I dated her anyway. And to be totally clear, I was rebelling against God's plan for my life to be with this girl. This was a relationship that I knew was ultimately sinful. And this lady would have never been able, I wouldn't have been able to go into ministry if I was with her. I was abandoning God's call on my life. And I didn't listen to people in my life. Now, while we didn't have sex, we sinned in all kinds of other different ways. Our relationship was destructive to both of us. And after we broke up, I was terrible. I remember I kept her number. We kept in contact. You know, we'd text every now and then. We'd reach out. We're just keeping each other in each other's back pocket. And interestingly, all my people were trying to get me to change. All my friends, all my enemies. It was one of those relationships that everybody hated. Most people liked us as individuals, but when we were together, we were just the worst you know, and I wish we could have been like normal people where it's like, okay, so we hate each other. So I'm going to go that way. You go this way and let's never speak again. Right. But we couldn't do that. We just stayed together. We were the notoriously dysfunctional couple at Wheaton. <clears throat> Everyone knew it was wrong. I knew it was wrong, but I didn't want to change. I refused to listen to people around me, to wisdom around me. And I ignored God's call on my life. And I don't know if you have anyone like that in your life, but the big question today is how do we get someone to change? who's rebelling against God's plan for their life. How do we do that if they don't really want to change? And today, part of the message is going to address sexuality in the Bible. I think there's lots of areas where secular society and human nature rebel against God's plan for our life. And, you know, I, I want to talk about sexuality, but I think we need to have a greater conversation on sin in general because secular society today, I think, looks at everything that God calls sin and is like, it's all okay. You know, and secular society now has a problem with anything, you know, alcohol, pride, unforgiveness, sex outside of marriage, narcissism, selfishness. I think secular society basically endorses all these things. Build a shrine to yourself on Instagram, be a narcissist, do all this, you know, your own personal brand. Like what, what are we coming to in society? It's, it's a wonder we have so many people who are obsessed with themselves. And as a church, I think what's happened is we sort of run to the shadows in these areas. Like church has become like, don't talk about anything controversial. Let's just be a big giant self-help hour. You know, we show up on Sunday morning, talk about how God loves you and your best life right now. And, you know, we don't want to say anything wrong because we're afraid of the bullies of cancel culture. And cancel culture has said, agree with us or be dehumanized. Agree with us or we'll call you racist, we'll call you selfish, we'll call you whatever, nationalist, whatever. And Christians face a lot of pressure and we respond in one of two ways, okay? Either... Christians choose to be silent or we choose to fight back. I'm going to hit back, right? One of these two things. And you know which one of these you're probably more likely to do. And Jesus says both of these are wrong. Okay, we don't, we don't sit there and say nothing. We don't sit there and fight back. Jesus said there's a third thing. And he pioneered this. He said, you know what? Instead of doing that, what we need to do is change hearts. He's the one who told us to do this, but he also shows us how to do it. Now, last week, if you recollect, we talked about the anointing of Jesus, 
And in ancient society, an anointing was a big deal. Because remember, everything kind of smelled bad. You know, it was a, it was a bad world. It was like a, a junior high locker room with Axe body spray covering the BO. Like when somebody came to your house, you put an anointing on their head, which was fragrant. It was nice and it would sort of cover up that smell for a little bit. We had the lock in here. And some of you noticed when you came in, you're like, okay. You know, and our cleaning team, they tried hard. They did a great job. But sometimes you just can't get over. You know, and there's no amount of Axe, no amount of Febreze. Like we can't do it. God help us. Some of you guys got a lot of sons in junior high. You know what I'm talking about, right? So anyway, um, good smelling things in that world were rare. Jesus is at this party and this woman comes in and she anoints Jesus with this extremely expensive perfume. And uh, it's, a, it's a big deal in that world. And Jesus gives us this lesson because she gives this lavish display of love to Jesus. It's like, why did she love him so much? And Jesus says, here's why. I tell you, her sins and there many have been forgiven. So she's shown much love. If you want to be a loving person, if you want to be an empathetic, compassionate person for people who are different, it begins with receiving forgiveness from God. He says, but a person who's forgiven little, a person who's prideful, a person who really doesn't admit they got a lot of sin in their life, they're not able to forgive very much. Then Jesus said to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Now, great story. Definitely want to watch last week if you missed it. But here's the background of that story that most of us don't know. Jesus is anointed two separate times in the Bible. And Jesus' anointings are actually recorded a total of four times. Once in each gospel. Once in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, Matthew, Mark, and John record the second anointing of Jesus, which took place right before he was crucified. Luke contains the first anointing of Jesus that happened much earlier in his ministry. Now, there's a lot of debate about how these two anointings are related. There's a book that came out 20 years ago called The Da Vinci Code that created this false narrative around the anointings and Mary Magdalene, which is not true. Um, but today, I'm gonna give you my educated opinion on how these two anointings are related. And I just wanna give this big disclaimer here. There's lots of people I respect who would disagree with me, and there's lots who would agree. So this is, this is not like for sure, for sure, but this is what I think. What I think is the sinful woman that we read about right here in, this, um, in the book of Luke is the same woman who's gonna anoint Jesus the second time right before he is crucified. And uh, this woman is Mary of Bethany. And I believe that she ran away from her family in Bethany up to Galilee. And she's living a worldly life up there. I think she is the beautiful sister of a woman named Martha and a man named Lazarus. Mary and Lazarus in the Bible are some of Jesus's closest friends. He interacts with them a lot. And we don't actually know how they became friends. I think it's because Jesus connects with her sister and helps her repent of her sin and come back home to them. I think Mary was her sibling who ran away to Galilee and she rebels and becomes a bit of a wild woman sleeping around and being sort of a, a prostitute. She's got a group of fast-running run, friends, and she's got the ancient-day equivalent of a really big, successful OnlyFans account. You know, and she's got this alabaster jar worth $60,000 full of expensive perfume, and the perfume is the key to her profession. It drives the men nuts. It's like auga. You know, it's like the equivalent today of hair extensions and eyelash extensions and you know, lip injections and your nails and your forehead injections, and I don't know what else they're putting stuff in, you know, but the thing going on, you know, that the girls do like, mm, wow. And the guys are like, oh my goodness, you know, whatever. I don't, I don't really understand it because, you know, I'm too old for that stuff. But anyway, she has everything she thought she wanted. You know, thousands of men, imagine thousands of men just, you know, paying her to tell her how beautiful she is. More money than she could possibly need. Friends who say that they adore her. She goes anywhere she wants, generally. And she's empty. Have you ever been there? I mean, that's the thing about sin, isn't it? I mean, sin, there's no amount of it that satisfies. Nobody's like, you know what? Like, I was greedy, and now that I got all this stuff, like, my greed's gone. Like, my pole barn's like, I have enough. I've got a nice enough boat. I don't want a bigger boat. You know what I mean? Like, that's just, I made it. 
You know, I don't know anyone who's like, you know what? Like, I've had enough sex. Like, I'm good. Like, my lust is really sated. I've had enough attention. Like, no, 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 no. Have you ever been there where you got all the things you thought you wanted, but you had abandoned some of your heritage to get there? It's dreadfully lonely, isn't it? I flirted with the idea a few times, and what's amazing to me is to be in a room full of people who know and love you, but they don't really know you that well. And when you're there, you just wish you could be with the people you left to get there. I think that describes Hollywood pretty well, doesn't it? You have all these movie stars. They have everything they thought they wanted. They clawed up the ladder their whole life. They get there, and you see these people in interviews, and they're just empty. They don't know who they are. You know, they just sit there, and they talk. It's like there's nobody home in their heart. This is just my guess, but I believe the reason Jesus became such good friends with Lazarus and Martha is because he talked Mary into going home to them. He brought Mary back and she reconciled with her family. Now, things are still not perfect. And this is what I love about the Bible is it's a real portrayal of what's happening. Mary comes home and she's still deciding who she wants to be. And here's the thing, here's the thing. We assume when you give your life to Christ, everything changes. The old is gone, the new is here. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus, never to be the same. And it's like, well, yeah, that's true. But, but redemption is a process, right? It's, it happens in a moment, but then it's a process. And I love that the Bible portrays this. She gets home and she still fights with her sister, Martha. You know, they still got issues. They still got tension. Just a few chapters, this is Luke chapter seven. In Luke chapter 10, it says, but Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, just imagine this, right? Your pastor's over for dinner. Mary puts her sister on blast, absolute blast. Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister just sits here while I do all the work? You need to tell her to come help me. It's like, whoa, oh my goodness, you know? And I love the Bible includes these little tidbits. Clearly, Jesus knew this family pretty well. This is some of the most familiar and informal communication that we see anyone use around Jesus because Jesus knows this family super well. And I love that redemption is painted as a work in progress. Mary doesn't come home and have things perfect. She's working through a lot of the pain that was wrought in her family. The bottom line is Jesus gets close to this family. The Bible says, because Lazarus, their brother, eventually gets an illness and he dies. And Jesus is so close with his family, even though he's God, even though he knows the future, even though he knows he's gonna raise Lazarus from the grave, the Bible says that Jesus weeps over this man's death. Nowhere else does he do that. He weeps over Lazarus' death. And then he raises him from the grave. And it's literally that miracle in Bethany, which is a suburb just north of Jerusalem. It's that miracle that causes the officials and the religious political class in Jerusalem to say, we gotta kill Jesus because he's so sensational now, like he's, he's getting power over us. So Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave right before Palm Sunday. He stops by to have dinner with him again. John chapter 12 and verse one, it says, six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in Jesus' honor. And I love this. It says, Martha served and Lazarus was among those who ate. So Lazarus didn't help. Mary didn't help, but Martha. And isn't it funny that both Luke and John note that, yeah, I mean, Martha was serving again. Have you ever had a woman making you some kind of meal that she didn't want to make? It's like you hear what's going on in the kitchen, like clang, bang, bam, boom. And everybody's like, okay, so what's happening? You know what I mean? Like, is somebody dying in there? And it's like, no, but somebody's going to die after you guys leave. Please don't go. You know what I mean? Like, Please, please stay, you know? And Martha's like slamming it down, like, here's your meal, Lazarus. Lazarus. You might want to have someone taste it first because I poisoned it, you know? Here's your meal, Jesus. Here's your meal, Mayor. Oops, I spilt on your dress. I'm sorry about that, you know, whatever. Like, that's what's going down right there. It says, then Mary took a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made of the essence of nard, spike nard. Same stuff as last week. 
And she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. Mark puts it this way. It says, uh, then she came in with a beautiful alabaster jar, same kind of jar as last week. Expensive perfume made from the essence of nard. She broke open, broke open. She broke this expensive jar and poured, the implication is all of it, the perfume there. Now there's a few key similarities between last week and this week I want to note. Similarities are obvious. First of all, it's spikenard in an alabaster jar worth a year's wages, worth 60 grand. Secondly, the hair wiping thing. I know a lot of you are like, well, I guess that's what the women of that day did. They just, you know, they didn't have mops, so they just used their hair, their hair extensions. That is not what they did. That's not normal. That is irregular. This is what Mary of Bethany did. That's part of why I think it's the same woman in both. It's the jar. It's the, the odd, peculiar way of using their hair. Nowhere else in antiquity do we see this. But Mary did this. The differences are also apparent. Last week, what wet Jesus' feet in the Luke passage? It was Mary's tears because she was emotional, because she was lost, because she was far from home. Last week, it was Mary, lonely, broken, coming home. This time, they don't talk about the tears. Instead, Jesus' feet are wet with the perfume that last week she just dabbed. This week, she poured. This time, they don't talk about the fact that she's a sinful woman. You know, last week, it was, if Jesus was a prophet, he'd know that the woman is doing this as a sinner. This week, it's, dude, what is she doing with all that money? She just dumped 60 grand on the ground. It's really interesting. She breaks the jar. She dumps the money. Like, what, what's going on? This is an astonishing, lavish display here, and there's a lot of theological significance, but I see two very important lessons for our Canceling Jesus series that I want to hit on today. And the first lesson we're going to hit on is for people who see others that you want to change. If this is you, if you're a Democrat wanting to see Republicans gain some compassion, if you're a daughter-in-law trying to connect with your weird in-law family, if you're a son trying to get your mother to see that you're a grown man and she doesn't need to get in your business anymore, you're going to want to lean into this right here. And then the second thing that I got in this is a note for the rest of us, and this is going to be the best part. I'm just telling you right now, my second point's way better than the first. Second point, y'all want to lean into, this is convicting. But let's start with the first one. How did Jesus reach Mary? How do we convince people to change? I mean, that's the question of the day, isn't it? Lord knows her siblings tried. She broke their hearts. She lived a sinful life. Obviously, Mary and Martha didn't get along. How did Martha try to confront her sister? Well, Lord knows she was an Enneagram type eight, right? Just like me. I mean, she's a confronter. And she did it by yelling humiliating in front of Jesus. Jesus, why don't you get this woman to do something? Why don't you get her to take care of whatever? It's like, wow, a lot of correcting, yelling, and overpowering. Some of you guys got families like that. You know what I mean? That's what Thanksgiving is, just a lot of yelling, shouting, whatever. And that's, that's just how we do stuff, honey. It's okay. It's normal. It's like, no, that's not normal. You all need therapy. Like, what's wrong with you? You know what I mean? But that's, that's families. Lazarus, interestingly, says nothing. He's just, he just, and that's the two sides, right? We either fight or we be silent. Martha, she fights. Lazarus, he does nothing. He's a smart man. I'm just gonna let the ladies take care. I know not to get involved or they're gonna turn on me, right? That's what happens. I'm just gonna be silent. Lord, you know, he's a smart man. A lot of us, you know, we've been married. We know, you, we know what, what's going on. Don't say anything, but also not great. God made us to lead, men. God made us to bring peace and life to our families, but Lazarus is quiet. Jesus does something different than both. He's not silent. He's not rude like Martha. We actually see him practice his strategy with a, a number of different outcasts throughout the Bible. Same thing. He does the same strategy to change people's hearts. Was Zacchaeus a tax collector? 
with a sinful woman that's been married five times at the well, with the woman caught in the act of adultery, with Matthew the tax collector, and of course, Mary of Bethany among others. There's at least five examples of Jesus applying this exact same strategy. What does he do first with each of these people? He gets to know them. With Zacchaeus, he has dinner, right? Zacchaeus, come down from the tree because I'm coming to your house today. With the woman at the well, he gets to know her. He talks about her life, asks her where she's at. Here's her story. The woman caught in the act of adultery, he dignifies her, cares for her, protects her. Matthew, the tax collector, he travels with them for two years, three years, excuse me, three years before Matthew becomes fully dedicated to following Jesus and actually changes. And here's the thing. Jesus never affirms their choices. Jesus is not open and affirming. He does not affirm sin. But before he gives correction, which he always does, he builds a relationship And even when people don't respond to his correction, he continues to love and relationship. Jesus was a friend of sinners. And I think this is the issue that society faces today, not just with Christians, but all of us. We've just stopped relationshiping. That's why I think like in-person church is kind of a good thing. I mean, in no other segment of our life do we see people really. I mean, we order our groceries for crying out loud. We order our fast food for DoorDash to our houses. Like I was at Taco Bell, praise Jesus, hallelujah, best food ever, you know. I was at Taco Bell the other day on a date with my daughter because I want to teach my daughter to date fine men with good taste, right? And I was there and there was like six orders of DoorDash coming in. I thought, what happened to the people? And they just set it out, DoorDash come, grab the food. I'm like, what in the world? I didn't even know this existed. This is a thing. I'm like, I can have Taco Bell brought to my house. I'm doing, anyway, lots of things happening right here. But this is why we, we just, we don't encounter people who are different anymore. We manicure our news feeds. You know, I only want to see things that agree with me. And listen, when it comes to people who are different, we don't know how to handle it. For Christian society today, when it comes to sexuality, you know, straight, gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender. I'll tell you this. The Bible and science are all super clear. The secular plan doesn't work. When it comes to the Bible, I mean, the Bible's super, super clear. Sex is for one man and one woman in the context of marriage only. It's super clearly, anything outside of that is super clearly called wrong in the Bible through a network of different verses that together are unassailable. And I've you know, heard lots of apostate, supposed theologians say things that are different, but like, if you wanna be even remotely true to the text and interpret the Bible in any sort of normal way, you, you gotta say, hey, like, God's definition of human sexuality is clearly defined in the Bible as traditional between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Sociological science actually backs up God's plan though. God's not like, hey, here's sex it's gonna be boring and terrible. No, he says, here's sex. I want it to be great for you and great for your kids. All the science and data tells us that the biggest problem in American society today, it's not systemic racism, it's broken families. Like the greatest predictor of a child succeeding is are the mom and dad married at home together? Higher levels of depression, higher levels of suicidality, lower scores in school, lower probability of, uh, of, of good employment, higher levels of depression, suicidality, all in homes that are not a mother and father together. And it's like, wow, God made this plan for us, like sex in the context of marriage. Lesbian marriages have the highest occurrence of domestic violence of any relationship in Western society. Studies linked below. Having homosexual parents appears to increase the risk of incest and molestation by a factor of 50. Studies linked below. It's the data. It's just what the data says. And I know a lot of us don't like hearing that. I don't like hearing that, but it's real. Suicidality among uh, gay, lesbian, and transgender people is 40%, 40%. That's higher than the suicidality that we understand happened at Auschwitz. Societal discrimination does not come close to accounting for the differences in mental stability between straight, gay, lesbian, and transgender people. 
And I get it. Like, ultimately, God says, look, I love you guys. I care about you guys. Here's this plan that's gonna make your life, it's gonna make your life good. That's why God says, you know, don't endorse behavior that is hurtful. I just think a lot of Christians and people in general don't know how to build a relationship like Jesus did to call people to change. And I think it used to be Christians had a reputation for being like Martha. You know, we would fight, yell, scream, shout. Today, I think we got a lot of Lazaruses. Just quiet. Don't say anything. Keep your mouth shut. And look, I get it. Society's scary today. Like I've had progressive Christians in the last two years say the most hateful things I've ever heard. Like, I mean, just super hateful things directly to me. Shocking. We have a society that's become like a bunch of Marthas and I think Christians have become a bunch of Lazaruses. Just hide and don't say anything and whatever. And listen, we have to do something different. We have to change hearts. And the answer is relationship. I'm gonna link in the description a talk that my wife and brother did years ago at our church about both of their respective struggles with their sexual orientation. But why did my brother come out as gay to my parents when he was young, yet choose to honor God with his life when he was older? I'll tell you why. It's because my mom and dad, they weren't Martha's to him. They weren't Lazarus's to him. They lived like Jesus. They relationshiped with him. They earned his trust. And then they kindly and lovingly called him to honor God with his life. Why did my wife choose to honor God with her life when she had real sexual orientation, confusion, and questions in her life? It's because she had a mentor who loved Jesus named Kirsten Tucky, who lived like Jesus, who built a relationship with her, but then this is critical, called her to follow God's plan. Not a Martha, not a Lazarus, but a manifestation of Jesus Christ in her life. I think there's a lot of Christians in the world, people in the world who have a Mary in our lives. Right, we got a Mary, we got a wayward friend. And um, I think a lot of us, sometimes we act like Martha. We say way too much, we fight, we yell, we scream, and you're wrong, whatever. Or we act like Lazarus and it's like, don't say anything. Just let them know by our actions. We're just not gonna say anything, whatever. I see this story and I'm so convicted. As we watch Jesus pursue Mary for years, think about this, their relationship lasted years. And the years thing is a big deal. I mean, Jesus wasn't just a friend of sinners at the well. He wasn't just a friend of sinners in a moment. He relationshiped with them to win their hearts. In-person church, life group, consistency over the long haul. Because here's the thing, and this is really important. I don't want you to miss this. And this is where, you know, I'm gonna start to make a point that I think is like profound and important and, and tune back in if you fell asleep. But um, I don't think that Mary actually changed until the second anointing. She's got this alabaster jar. Think about this with me. It's worth 60,000 bucks. It's the key to the life that she built for herself. Drives men wild. It's her most precious possession. And the first time she, she anoints Jesus, what does she do? She gives him a few drops. Drop, drop, drop. And, the, you know, wets his feet with her tears, wipes it with her hair, whatever. She cries. It's an emotional moment. She's broken. She comes home to her siblings. But here's the thing, and I want you to get this. Okay, she keeps that alabaster jar for at least two years, right? Because it's used again in the second anointing. And the text doesn't tell us this, but I wonder what she did with it over the course of that two years. I wonder if she went back to it a few times. I wonder if every once in a while, you know, she went out with some boy she met on Bumble. It was super cute. I wonder if she didn't just, you know, log into OnlyFans a little bit just to get a little money, just to have people tell her she was beautiful again. I wonder if she went out for a weekend in Vegas and had a cheat weekend and just fooled around a little bit because it made her feel beautiful again, made her feel alive for a moment. Over the course of time, she begins to realize, man, Jesus is God. And, and Jesus, you know, raises her brother from the dead. 
And there's this moment where she realizes, oh my goodness, I'm not just like messing around and being a good person for me. This man is God. Like, and it's more than just my best life now. This is about eternity and God Almighty. And during the second anointing, she brings the jar back out and she breaks it and she pours it all out. And this time the response is different. Notice people don't call her a sinful woman. Everyone is astonished that she would waste so much money in a moment. It's 60,000 bucks poured into the carpet. But what she is doing is she's walking away from that old sinful life saying, I'm done with that. This is a stunning thing that she does because here's what she does and here's what a lot of us do is we keep that foot in the door of the old life, isn't it? Isn't that what we do? We just keep the, the, the jar in the closet and say, well, I mean, I'm not gonna go back to it, but it's there if I need it. And finally, after years of hanging around Jesus, she realizes, I'm giving up my old life. I'm dumping it all out. I'm breaking the jar. I'm done. I'm done with that. And I think this is the lesson for the rest of us, isn't it? How many of us are like Mary? How many of us follow Jesus, but we keep the alabaster jar in the back of our closet? Oh, yeah, we went to the cross. Oh yeah, it was a really authentic and emotional moment. You know, tears and whatever, and God, I need you and I need you and I'm broken. And of course, and by God's grace and wisdom, as we follow God, our lives begin to get better. We look different on the outside. I mean, people don't, people didn't look at Mary and say, oh yeah, she's still a sinner the second time because she was engaged with the church. She was doing good things. But she knew what was going on in her heart. And she was keeping that jar. And that's what we do is we give God a few drops of our sin. But when it comes to whatever it is, whatever's in your jar, you know, trusting God with our kids instead of being helicopter parents, forgiving people who disagree with us, hanging on to that victim mentality, creating narratives that make us seem like we're innocent rather than humble. When it comes to trusting God with our sexuality or with our finances or whatever, we just hang on to it rather than walking away from that old life. What we do is we come to Jesus with a few drops here. Here's this, you know, here's this little part, you know, a few little dabs like, oh, I'm so emotional, Jesus, I need your help, I'm broken, whatever. And sometimes that's all we can bring at the moment. And what I love about Jesus, and this is part of why we say no one's perfect and everyone's welcome. What I love about Jesus is he didn't look at Mary and say, well, you're out. What he did was he continued to relationship with her. And I believe he continued to call her to more. Mary, I know you still got that jar. He's like, yeah, but I'm not, I don't use it very often. Okay, well, I think that it's hurting you and it's hurting your relationship with God. And he continued to love her and he continued to relationship with her. When will you come to the place where you are willing to give up that jar? Where you dump it out and you say, I'm done with that. I don't know what the jar is you're holding on to, but I want you to know there is a God who loves you and who understands you. And he's not there to say that you're terrible. He's here to call you to more and better. He's beckoning you saying that you were made for more than this. You are made for more than greed and fear. You are made for more than shame and self-harm. You are made for more than money and working. You are made for more than sexual fantasy or orientation or swinging or meaningless relationships and hookups with strangers. So break the jar and be done with that. There is a God in heaven who is waiting for you, who loves you, who cares about you, who sent his son to die for you. And I still remember the moment where I broke my jar with my ex-girlfriend. My mom and dad 
had relationship with me like Jesus. They were not like Martha, mean and nasty. They were not like Lazarus, silent. They continually told me, John, God has more for, more for this than you. I wanna call you away from your sin. They were super clear. This woman is not for you. We love you and, and we don't hate her, but we're calling you to different. I remember finally, my dad took me out, Dunn Brothers Coffee, Matamidi, Minnesota. Same confrontation. We had the conversation a bunch, bunch still love me. He said, John, I'm calling you to more and better. Please, please, you got, you got to get rid of her. You got to end it. And it's not because she's bad. It's yours. You are not who God called you to be. Three and a half years together with her. And finally, I remember writing her this email. I went back to my office. After that meeting, I went back to my office. And um, I just wrote her an email saying, hey, this is the last you're going to hear from me. And I'm sorry for my role in a lot of different things. I'm not angry. I just, we need to be totally done. Changed my phone number. Changed all my accounts. Blocked everything. Made it impossible for us to reach out ever again. It was cutting out that sexual, spiritual, emotional sin from my life. It was breaking the jar. I'd been following Jesus for years. And it's so interesting. As time went on, I just allowed this little sin I'd been keeping in my life to get control of me. And that day I gave it all to him. And look, I know that this part of the message isn't necessarily for everybody, but I bet for a good half of us hearing my voice, this is for you. Today, I want to challenge you to break that jar. I don't know what it is in your life, but would you bring it to Jesus and break it? Pour it out, be done with that. I don't know what that might entail for you. I mean, for some of us, it's like, I need, I need to give away this thing. I can't deal with it anymore. I need to delete these accounts. I need to you know, change some of these things in my life. I need to confess them, but you need to break, break that jar, break it, be done with it. To others of us, um, God's calling us not to be a Martha, not to be a Lazarus, but to live like Jesus. And I just wanna challenge us to do that. I want this to be a place where no one's perfect and everyone's welcome. Jesus is a friend of sinners. And that's what we are. We're not silent. We lovingly call people to better, faithfully, lovingly, over and over. Today's a big day, I know, for some of us because I think God is convicting and moving in our hearts um, to change, especially those of us who have that jar. I just want you to know it's never too late to bring that to Jesus. He loves us and we wanna help you. Um, on your connect cards, there's a box you can check that says taking a step with Jesus today. Um, we would love, and you can turn that into the usher buckets on your way out of our services. We would love to call you this week and help you walk through what breaking that jar might look like. Um, if you're watching online, you can text I'm in to this phone number right here. We would love to connect with you and talk about what it would mean to follow Jesus and to break that jar in your life. As we close, I wanna ask you to stand to your feet and I'd like to have a word of prayer with you guys. God in heaven, I ask that our church would be a place where no one's perfect, where everyone's welcome. God, I ask that our church would be a place full of people, not like Martha, not like Lazarus, but a place full of people like Jesus. A place where we call people to better and we love them while they're deciding. Lord, I ask today that uh, there'd be lots of people who would, would break the jar be done with that and walk away from sin. Thank you for your faithfulness and your love and your grace and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, that you give us an opportunity to experience true relationship with you. I pray that we would walk in that knowing that nothing else satisfies. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's sing this last song together, guys.